0: Welcome to a faith-based conversation for blending stepfamilies. I'm your host, Jen Rogers. Each week, join me to learn best practices to blending your family and leaving an impactful legacy for your blend. Well, hey there, welcome to season two of Blended on the Bluff. I'm so excited to take a new approach for season two, where I interview guests to give us additional perspective on what it's like to live your life in a blended family. So excited to welcome you and have you here to welcome our guests as they share their stories and insights so that we can blend beautifully together. Today's an exciting day for Blended on the Bluff. In our Zoom studio, we're crossing the miles between Missouri and Michigan to chat with Justin Black and Alexis Slenderman Black. They're newlyweds, entrepreneurs, authors of Redefining Normal, How Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discovered Healing, Happiness and Love. And they're two beautiful lights in a dark world. (laughs) Hi Alexis and Justin, welcome to Blended on the Bluff. Hello, thank
1: you for having us. Yeah, we're we're super excited to be here. Thank you for having us on,
0: Absolutely. I'm excited uh, for you to share your story with our audience. Uh, 2020, gosh, that's been quite the year for a lot of people. But for you, the two of you, it is uh, definitely a unique year. So when we did our prep work for this interview, Justin, you encouraged everybody to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, um, being uncomfortable is the only time where you'll be able to kind of grow and challenge yourself and see what you can do in life. You know, if you are always in an environment where you're comfortable, where you're safe, you feel, you know, just complacent, then there'll be no area of growth, no area of uh, I need to learn something that I've never learned before or challenge myself to do something that I've never done before. And if you never go through those challenges, you don't become uncomfortable, then you'll never grow. And I think in a year like this, it's really challenging everybody to be uncomfortable. And all of us are in unique situations and we just have to adjust. And that's what life is about. Ne- nothing will ever stay the same. You always have to adjust adapt. So,
0: And it definitely comes through in your book as far as the discomfort and the, the growing and the learning about interacting with people in relationships and in homes, uh, I want to make sure our audience caught that your book, your subtitle was how to foster kids beat the odds and discover healing. So this while we're going to talk about some tough stuff in this podcast, this podcast is essentially about hope, and that there is hope, and that there is a way out And so if you are in a challenging foster situation, a challenging blended family situation, I just wanna encourage you here with my brand new friends, Alexis and Justin, that uh, there is hope for you and hope is found in Jesus. And so we're very excited to share with you what that looks like in real life. Um, When we did our pre-interview, I also asked you to pick three adjectives to describe yourself. (laughs) Now it's okay if you don't remember exactly what you said. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you to do that again. So can you pick three adjectives to describe yourself?
1: You can go first. <laughs> oh, I think I'm
0: first
2: first. Okay. Um, I would say for me, probably ambitious. Oh, I remember mine. Ambitious, hard-headed, and unique.
0: That's right. That's exactly <laughs> what you said. The pressure's not... on. Uh, <laughs> what did I, you
1: say? I would say uh, <laughs> humble, mm-hmm. um, thankful. I don't know if I said is it thankful. And uh, I think my last one was curious. Yes. Yeah, it was.
0: It was. So your middle one last time was brave, humble, brave, and curious, but definitely thankful comes through mm-hmm. uh, the more that we get to know each other as well. I so this time, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: And I think that fits in better. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. Uh, so this time, Justin, how, what three adjectives would you ascribe to your wife?
1: Wow. Um, resourceful, of course, um, simply amazing. Uh, and what is the last one I can describe, Alexis? Obviously, um, just intelligent, you know, I guess I guess those would be the three.
0: That yeah. makes me think about when I read in the book where uh, she sat you down with a planner and helped you to plan things. So I would have chosen organized as well. Yeah,
1: I, I probably should have said that she's always figuring out my life for me. So, yeah.
0: All right, Alexis, what three adjectives would you use to describe your husband? I
2: would hundred percent say humble. is the first one. Um, extremely handsome.
1: <laughs> you
2: know, that's gotta be in there. Oh, yeah. And what's another good one? Um, creative. He's incredibly creative. And he does all the creative work for our businesses because <laughs> I'm not there.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So you get him where he needs to be and then he just goes.
2: Flourishes, yes. I'm the logistical, organized, get everything together person. That's where I flourish.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and, and working with you to set this podcast up for sure, I can definitely recognize that. <laughs> So I'm confident that these adjectives, all six of them that were ascribed to you, so 12 in total, are going to come through as you share your story. So would you give our listeners a little background on, obviously, you, you pour out your hearts in this book and what it was like growing up in the foster system. And so uh, if you would share maybe how you first entered in and then whatever else it is that you want to share about your story, and then we'll just keep going.
1: Yeah, so uh, again, my name is Justin. Uh, I'm from Detroit, and I've grown up in Detroit since about the age of 17 or 18 years old. And I entered the foster care system at nine years old in Detroit because my my mom dealt with a lot of substance abuse issues, and my dad was selling drugs. And we just grew up in a impoverished community overall. And the thing is, a lot of those ideas of growing up in poverty, of seeing uh, uh, drug abusers in your living room and around you, um, constantly those ideas became normal. And it got to a point where child protective services came to a place to visit and we were on a run for a little bit. And uh, we lived in, in an abandoned house for a while on the run from child protective services. And that uh, happened from about, I would say October to March and living through the, the win, the winter of. Uh, living in an abandoned house was just extremely rough, and my mom just couldn't let us suffer through that anymore. And she decided decided to release us to, to the foster care system, which led me. Uh, I'm the youngest of five siblings. Me and my brother, who was the fourth youngest, me and him went to live with my oldest brother, and we lived with him for about two years. And we then went to live with my aunt for a couple of years, and uh, one of my best friends. And then we were separated and. I went to live in a group home in Southfield, but throughout the system, just dealing with a lot of uh, mental health issues, not feeling wanted because um, I grew up in Detroit and my, my, my mother and father never was more than about 30, 40 minutes away and always wanting their attention and love and always feeling invalidated because I didn't have that. And any household that I lived in uh, kind of suffered because I always wanted their love. And if I, I was never satisfied until I had that. And um, just a bunch of mental health issues with that uh, on top of at 13, just having a lot of traumatic experiences with uh, having my teeth knocked out, uh, just randomly walking home from school uh, in middle school. And um, just I would jump one day by high schoolers on my way home from school, catching the bus, and I was hit with the brick having four of my teeth knocked out and a part of my bone uh, uh, going as well. And that caused a lot of mental health issues and not and, and a lot of emptiness and loneliness and not being able to make friends and trying to uh, grow and stabilize my mental health and also combine with my spiritual health. And that kind of shaped my relationship with God and me being in a situation where I didn't have friends in middle school, and high school, I entered into college. Uh, wanting to do any and everything that I could to meet people who didn't know I had fake teeth because I had a partial in in at the time, people who didn't know my background and make those friends and do whatever I had to do to fit in. So start to separate from God and make unethical decisions that God would be pleased with. And it wasn't until I was faced with those realities of um, being in foster care and being around other people who were vulnerable with themselves and honest with themselves about their experiences and their, um, their past, that I really had to come back to God and be truthful in my experiences. And meeting Alexis and being with Alexis helped me be honest with myself about my teeth and about my experiences overall. So it kind of brought everything back full circle and being thankful for my relationship with Alexis, but ultimately my relationship with God as well.
0: Wow. There's a lot of stuff in there. I want to pull something out and we'll come back around to it so that Alexis, you can go ahead and share your your story. Uh, But you were talking about um, fitting in and how if you were in one place where people knew all your stuff, that there was discomfort there and you couldn't make any friends, all of that. And I imagine fear, there was fear there as well. Uh, Am I going to get hit with a brick again? Am I going to get beat up again? How do I avoid these situations? And I think for the blended audience, there's a desire to fit in as well. And so when the household split and then the kids move into a new home, there's that not fitting in and struggling to find their way. And then also having to explain things to all the people that they know, the schools they go to, the friends that they have. Uh, And so there's a big disruption there. So those are some of the things I was thinking of as you were sharing uh, your experiences. Uh, We'll we'll come back to those in a little bit, I think. Mm -hmm. Alexis.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm Alexis and I actually entered foster care at about six. Um, It was, uh, or sorry, at 13. I um, lost my mother though at six. Um, That's what I was alluding to. She actually died um, from suicide and my grandma also died from suicide, which was her mother. Um, and so when I lost her, I moved in with my, um, biological dad and right around that time was when the, um, physical, sexual, and emotional abuse began and it lasted until about 13. And that's when I, um, was pretty much forced to say something. Um, and then I was taken away and put into foster care. And although I was in foster care, I lived with, um, my aunt and uncle. So it was more of a kinship placement and, um, but living with them, it was very unhealthy, situation um, just because there was a lot of um, emotional and mental sort of abuse of things uh, said behind closed doors um, directly to me um, and being told to act happy in front of other family members and friends and trying to look like the perfect family, the perfect house. Um, It was in a very nice area, uh, definitely middle class to upper class neighborhood. Um, I, I went to a really good high school, so I don't regret um, that experience because I met so many phenomenal people and mentors and things during that time, but um, lived with them for about five years. But I during that time I actually uh, begged many foster care workers to get me out um, of their house just because I I didn't feel that it was a good placement and I had several tell me that um, you know it's not going to get much better than this that uh, you're in a good high school you're in a beautiful home you need to stick it out and so um, then I had uh, counselors at school would tell me that, um, you know, let's just get through high school. <laughs> let's just make it. And so that was my goal. It was really just get through high school. Um, and, uh, and then my junior year of high school was when my aunt actually kicked me out, packed up all my stuff, put it in the driveway. Uh, and so, um, it was one of the scariest moments of my life. Cause I didn't know what was going to happen next. There was a lot of threats of what was going to come next. If I, if I ever left her house, who I would be placed with, what it was going to be like. And so that was a very terrifying moment, but it was also the greatest moment of my life because the next week I met my foster now adoptive parents and greatest humans on earth. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, uh, but I had to, you know, it was a readjustment period of moving into a family. They had young kids. I never grew up around little kids. So it was, so that was interesting to me um, and just adapting to being a part of a new family. But then about, I wouldn't even say it was six months later. um, He, my foster dad got a job um, on the other side of the state. And so right when I was starting to adjust uh, to being there and like looking up to them and on all these things, it was like, you're, you're leaving already. Um, But they did their best to keep me in the family. And I moved in with um, my foster mom's uh, parents. So it was her mom and dad. And so I was able to stay in the same high school. It was about 40 minutes away from school. So I had to drive every day but I, I was able to stay at the same school. That was my 10th school. I didn't have to change. Um, and they were incredibly loving people. It was a great home to live in. And I was still a part of the family. And so, um, I actually was recently adopted at, at 26 in December. So I wanted to be adopted before we got married so that my dad could walk me down the aisle. That was like my thing, what I wanted.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's so good. So gosh, there's a lot of stuff in there. Generational curses. Um, getting accustomed to a new place, a new way of being, um, being required to act like everything's perfect when your insides are broken and you're falling apart.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so yeah. 10 high schools.
2: Well, 10, no, 10 schools from ten schools. kindergarten to high gotcha. school. Um, it was 10 different schools. Um, oh, and then also when I was living with my aunt we'll talk about later, um, they had a lot of marital issues and how I was always put in the middle. Mm-hmm. And my cousins didn't know what was going on. And I was the one who kind of just had to take the butt of, of what was happening on top of all the other <laughs> trauma that I was dealing with. Um, so it was a fun time.
0: <laughs> it's really interesting. I've been reading this book and rereading this book. It is the body keeps the score and it's, um... I
2: want to read that it's on my reading list.
0: Vander, I'll have to look up his name again, and I'll put it in the comments of the podcast mm-hmm. so people can check it out. But the Body Keeps the Score—it's a—it's a—it's a volume. It's a thick book in the sense of the content is very deep, but it talks about those kind of things uh, that how your body responds to trauma. So I wonder—I uh, mean, obviously when you have your teeth knocked out. There's a lot of physical pain that goes along with that. But you also alluded to the emotional pain, Justin, when you had mentioned that. So I think for many of our listeners, they have or experienced or are experiencing trauma. And sometimes um, I think that's where that PTSD comes from. You know, the, the post you're away from the trauma and you think, okay, I'm, I'm good and yet there are these emotional and spiritual things that you have to go through to totally move past what you experienced as trauma. And so when this body keeps a score, it talks a lot about that, uh, about how our body responds. So would you uh, share any kind of um, physical or emotional or spiritual trauma um, as far as how you are working through that? And then especially, you know, being married and having talking about um, Alexis, you were talking about your mom and your grandma both died from suicide. So there has to be a sort of alarm bell in your head that says, oh my gosh, I must be aware that this is a thing. And I think healing from trauma first starts with having an awareness and getting help. So would you share a little bit about that with us?
1: Yeah. So um, when, when things happen, some of the the mental um, trauma came from just growing up in an environment filled with violence. Um, I have two generations of domestic violence on my dad's side and two generations of drug abuse on my mom's side. So I had to kind of figure out how do I where do I go with my emotions and what I'm dealing with? Because at the time, you know, you go back to school and, you know, kids can be extremely harsh with jokes and, 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 so many other things. And even when I did get my partials, which were fake teeth, um, you know, being around a lot of the same kids are like, Hey, we know that you're the kid with the missing teeth, take the partials out. And then when I get to high school and I, I transfer high schools, um, I play football and, you know, I had to take those partials out to play football and, you know, you can't keep that secret at high school. So your, your friends on the football team is like, Hey, teeth, you know, whatever. And, and making jokes, but honestly, it's just really hard to make friends, and as a teenager who is trying to form and shape your identity, it's just when you're the something traumatic that happens to you when that becomes your identity. When people see you a certain way, and all your friends, all your peers identify you in a certain way, and those words are continue can continue to be used, and uh, that shapes your identity, and who you are you can't see beyond those words and things that are that are used on a daily basis and how people view you on a daily basis so working through that i had to kind of gather my emotions and figure out how do i direct myself in a healthy way because i mean with my family history of violence and then this traumatic thing this violent act that happened to me i was kind of like burned out on violence and a lot of my Biological family may have wanted it with wanted to retaliate with violence and react that way, but I was just kind of burnt out with violence and and that way of thinking. And I wanted to my relationship with God was just asking God, why did this happen? You know, I don't know what what made this this situation come to where it is now. Um, why don't I have my parents here supporting me and, and there for me and loving me? And why am I taking the same route home from school that I, I had when uh, my teeth were knocked out and I had to go past this exact same spot where it happened every single day and just asking God all these questions and, and looking for answers and you're just confused on what to do. Um, I think that the main thing was being like, it It wasn't God that put me through that circumstance of having my teeth knocked out, but God strengthened me to be an advocate for kids who are lonely kids who are dealing with depression and let them know that they aren't alone and the things that are said about them isn't a reflection of who they are and their identity because as a teenager in life in general the things that people say about you we can kind of internalize those things and think of that as our uh, think of those things of who we are pretty much and i had to figure out my true identity outside of the things that my peers and other people were saying about me and really take on the identity that God has for me, being made in God's image, being that I can overcome anything through Christ who strengthens me. And these identities and the the things that God says about me and loving myself, being patient and kind with myself and seeing the best in myself and, and and bearing all things. I had to see that within myself. And then once I was able to see that in myself I see that in other people and knowing that we're all broken people, just trying to express our trauma on other people. Like people who were saying things about me in high school and middle school, it was a poor neighborhood. And a lot of those kids come from rough backgrounds and they're just eternalizing their trauma and, and things that they've gone through, putting that on me. But I had to figure out who I am through those circumstances and create that that armor and shield of God and know that, you know, as an adult, things would not, People, The world will never stop throwing things at you, but I'm secure in my identity, who I am, and understanding that people are, uh, I don't know their experiences and what they've gone through, but the things that they say is just a reflection of who they are. So I can't control other people, but I can control myself, and my way of thinking, and just processing things, taking it one step at a time and being intentional.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. Is it definitely one of my soapbox issues about think about what you're thinking about because the actions reflect what you've been thinking about. And so I know that it definitely takes a lot of practice to when we when we take each thought captive. Like what how, how do you do that? Well, you do it through practice that is this truth? Is this aligned with God's word? Is this aligned with who I am? And if it's not, then I do have the power to reject it. And I think that is where um you know, when hurting people hurt people, it's so hard for the one who's been hurt, which is both of them, then, right, to uh, break that cycle and to say, "Wait a minute, this is there's more for me out there. That the the opportunities are there. It's just clouded by my circumstances right now." Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. How about you, Alexis?
2: Yeah. And it's funny that you say that, because that's one of my favorite quotes is um, hurt people, hurt people, heal people, heal people. And Mm -hmm. that really has stuck with me um, because I'm always intentional of like, how am I operating day to day? How am I going about um, my day to day life, my interactions with other people? Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I was going to say after he said that was um, I didn't realize the depth of my trauma until I left the situation. It wasn't, it's not in the situation that you realize that because you're so busy surviving and get getting through it, that it was when I left the abusive relationship I was in or the abusive households I was in. It was when I got out of those situations that I'm like, holy crap, I have a lot to deal with. Um, and that, and I actually stopped going to therapy at that time. Cause I'm like, my problems are solved. I got out of the house. I got out of the relationship. You know, I don't need therapy anymore. My problems are solved. No, there's so like there's this deep, deep, uh, rooted trauma that's still there that I have to bring out and work through. Um, mm-hmm. and that's my job and anybody else's job is to work through that. Um, uh, because nobody's gonna heal me but me. Well, God, but like, you know, he's gonna be, me, he, ha- he wants me to meet him halfway. And, um, I didn't find out until high school, actually, was uh, right, at, uh, right after track meet or right before a track meet, actually, that I found out that my mom committed suicide. Um, I was always told that. She fell at work and broke her neck. Well, she did die at work, but that wasn't what happened. Now, I guess she maybe did break her neck, but the truth wasn't there. And I never took that that answer. And so when I did find out what happened, um, I felt really betrayed because I felt like nobody told me what happened, whether it was for a good reason or not. The way it came out was very wrong in my eyes. Um, and then I didn't find out until maybe two or three years ago that that's how my grandma died, too. And people talk about it in my family, like, oh, did you know she died like that too? Like, it wasn't like, let me sit you down and talk to you about this. Let me see why this maybe has happened. What is in our family? Like, there was none of that. It was just like, hey, you know how the mom died like that too? Did you know grandma died that way? And it was just like, how can you just talk about it? So nonchalant and like not care. Um, And so there's the attitude in general, like in my family towards a lot of things. And and that's one of the main reasons why we wanted to write this book is because we look around us at our families and our communities and we see how such awful traumatic things have been normalized. It's just the daily regular life. And it's like, but that's not how I want my life. I don't want to spend my entire adulthood healing from my childhood and I don't want to pass on my trauma to my future kids. And it's my job to heal myself so mm-hmm. that I'm not passing that on to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see, I see so many people like from my childhood, and from high school, having children. And it's so hard for me to say congratulations because I know that they have so much unresolved trauma because I've known them, I've grown up with them and it's like seeing that and knowing that they're going to pass that down to their children. It just breaks my heart. And it's like, we, we have a duty to, to heal ourselves and to go through that so that we can be capable parents just because I can provide from them, um, financially, uh, or put a roof over their head or whatever. A lot of parents think that doing the bare minimum is good enough. That's not, we have, it's the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, we have certain levels of needs that need to be met in our lives. And, um, and through different living situations for myself and with Justin, uh, we've lived with individuals who maybe fit the basic pillar of, I give you a home, give you food, you better be happy. (laughs) And and that's just not how we are as humans. We need so much more than that.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I I tell you that reminds me of uh, the quote. Probably one of my favorite among several in the book is the unresolved trauma, where Justin, you had talked about it that it's easily passed down from generation to generation, and that that trauma is actually normalized as love. <laughs> and I, I think. That is where, um, as kids, you, want, you look up to adults. One, you have to look up to them physically. So there's already that level of, I need to trust this person, right? And this is the person who is providing for me. And then uh, as you go and grow and you get disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, I think it's a fine line between balancing what could very quickly become a bomb of resentment and hate and anger uh, and, and a wanting to retaliate. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for the people who are listening and in these really tricky situations that you've just shared with us, uh, what, let's give them some hope. Let's share with them. What do you think would have helped you had you heard it from someone else who you knew had traveled in your shoes? What would
1: have helped you, continue on? So one of the things that has helped me with the turning point in my life, something that I wish I would have uh, known when I was younger, is just the the ability to speak life into people and the ability to continue to, to teach positive habits and, and um, positive behavior. And with our book, Redefining Normal, we, we talk about how so many bad things were normalized for us. And, you know, kids are literally just as fun and just absorbing everything that's going on around them. And it's crazy how we can teach kids uh, like they, they'll, they'll mimic you and mock the things that you do from a very young age. And even if you are like, if you're, you have a family of engineers, then it'll be natural or normal for them to, just know like certain mathematical equations or just be able to, you know, do certain engineering things that's so advanced and so beyond the maybe the average human being. And for people who've gone through trauma, it's when I mean, you grow up in poverty or, or neighborhoods with uh filled with drugs, you see those things on a daily basis, it, it becomes normal and acceptable. And one thing that I wish I had and I I, I needed when I was young, Is people to continue to encourage me to to be something that is beyond something that they could imagine and something that I could have imagined me being. And, you know, when I was young, I had a cap or a ceiling on the things that I could do and the things that I wanted to be based on what I saw around me. But I needed a community of people continuously, everyone around me to speak good things into me and positive things into me. Of you, okay. I see you being an amazing business owner. I see you doing great things with businesses or books, or just oh, you're an amazing writer. You are uh, amazing at doing this and then that. And continue to see those skills and that potential in me, and continue to feed that. Feed the feed the good writer, and continue to buy maybe buy him books on how to write better, or uh, have him read certain books with certain writing styles, and see the potential, and continue to feed that that potential. I think that was a key thing that I needed. So as for young people, for children, for teenagers, I would say that just continue to feed them positive thoughts and positive things. Continue to use positive words towards them to encourage them and and have that expectation that they will do great things. And as you see them do great things, continue to feed them things that will help them along their journey. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Yeah, and uh, for me, I I was what's great is that he set that foundation because the importance of the community around you to push you and the mentors and that example, but also what's equally or more important is your self-talk and what you have told yourself about your value, your worth, what you're capable of. And that was my issue for so many years because I've internalized the opposite of that. And even though I was, taken out of my environment, I was put in a very loving and secure home. And I had all these things. Then it became when I looked at my, at my foster parents and their beautiful marriage and how they communicated and how they handled situations, I thought, what did they do to deserve that? I don't I don't deserve that. So my mm-hmm. self-worth believed that I, I, I didn't deserve that in my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and another example is I received a, a scholarship from Horatio Alger, I was a national scholar, and they brought me out to New, or to uh, Washington, D.C. It's was my first time out of, the, out of the state of Michigan and um, on my own, flew to D.C. by myself and they're doing all these different phenomenal workshops and ways to try to expand your thinking. And then they took me to Georgetown and I remember walking around campus thinking, I, am ne- I could never go here. I'm not smart enough. This is so far out of my capacity of what I'm able to achieve. And so when I began college, I started as an accounting major because I thought that was the most secure possible thing I could ever study. Everybody needs accountants. I'm good at numbers. And then what do I do? I'm exposed to uh, entrepreneurship and I switch my major. The most secure like, job you could ever take, right? Uh, and then now, like seeing us, you know, Uh, owning businesses and writing a book and choosing vulnerability over everything. Because we, we truly believe that if we're going to grow, if we want other people to grow, that we have to be the leader in that we have to be vulnerable in that. Um, Because I can look at an entire neighborhood and know that so many people in that same neighborhood are struggling with the exact same things of probably domestic violence of abuse of um, drug addiction of all these things, but nobody's talking about it. entire neighborhood, entire community are struggling with the same things, but nobody knows because everybody's always trying to hide behind their scars and hide behind what's going on to seem perfect, whether it's with your clothing or it's with your car or whatever it may be, um, or your beautiful home. We all are, we all have broken pieces that we need to work through. And it's just that honesty and that vulnerability is what's going to push us through that. And so that was one of our main pieces, um, because I, one of the things too is like through college, like I was, I was really successful. I was, um, I got a lot of awards. I got all these things, but yet between classes, I'm in the bathroom crying. Nobody knew this. Nobody knew, you know, how bad I was struggling and what was going on in my life. They saw this person who was achieving academically and getting awards and scholarships and things, but I, it was really hard. And so, um, so yeah, that we're just, we believe in vulnerability in our, in our marriage and, Um, our relationships with others in our community. That's, that's how you form community. So.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting while you were talking, I was thinking about uh, some time ago, I was part of a church that had a heart for foster kids. Mm -hmm. And so there were always lots of events and we sponsored things like um, a parents night out, foster parents night out. So the kids could come and play in the church gym and all of that. And uh, there were a lot of uh, people that um, they had uh, foster kids who had some sort of physical handicap. And so for them just to get a break was such a relief, even if they didn't actually go out on a date for dinner, just to be able to walk away from the kids and have some breathing space. And I think that's so important that uh, when we want to get value from somebody else without recognizing who and where our true value comes from, it's always gonna miss the mark. We're always going to be in a bathroom crying in the stall in between takes when we're out in public, right? I mean, it's just gonna go that way. Uh, and, and so I I'm thinking, I just had this reflection back on that and thinking that this is a call right now. If you are a pastor and you are listening to this podcast, this is a call for you to invite your church to serve foster kids everywhere. They need a home. They need parents who love them. They need a family who will care for them. It's not gonna be easy because it's just a very challenging situation. Oftentimes these kids have trauma. I mean, we're, we're we're hearing some of the trauma that uh, Justin and Alexis were exposed to, whether it's sexual trauma, emotional abuse, physical abuse, all of those things. So it's not going to be easy, but by golly, God calls us to love these children. And so again, if you are a pastor in a church, I'm asking you to consider having a passion for foster kids. And I lift that up as an invitation and as a prayer right now that uh, we the state cannot do it and they are not called to do it. And that's why the system is failing because real people in real families speaking real truth, that is who is called to serve these foster kids. And I know I don't know the numbers like you guys know the numbers. I know you could probably rattle off a bunch of them and maybe uh, I'll put a link in the podcast that has um, the stats. So if people want to go check out the stats, but the quote unquote- all st- kind of website,
2: mm-hmm. Like all the statistics that are within the book, they're on the website source. And Perfect. what I really want to do is piggyback off that because a statistic, a sad statistic is that there's over 400,000 foster youth in this country. And if the church would, honest, like, this is a sad truth and it's harsh, but if the church would do its job, and every church fostered or adopted one child, we wouldn't have this issue. Yeah. We wouldn't have this issue. It's the church that needs to step up. And we firmly believe that as Christians and as what is in the Bible and what is God is asking us to do. And our mission on earth is to take care of those around us. Um, and so if every church was to step up and, and just foster it up one, <laughs> one, yeah. honestly, that's not, that's not a lot to ask for an entire congregation.
0: No, so it's a clarion call for sure. And that's where we'll leave it for this week. Tune in again next week when part two of this interview continues as we talk more about the similarities between foster children and stepchildren and what it's like to grow up in a family where things can be uncertain, where changes occur frequently, and where the kiddos question who they are and who they were meant to be. Thanks so much to my guests, Justin and Alexis. It was such a joy to have you. Y'all take care and we'll be back next week.
1: This is Jen Rogers, host of Blended on the Bluff.